You're listening to the weekly podcast by Forest Hill Church. Here you'll find a place to grow in your faith, get to know what the Bible's all about, and hear what it looks like to follow Christ. To watch our services live or find the campus nearest you, visit foresthill.org. If you're a parent, search for our new Forest Hill Parenting Podcast and subscribe to get new content tailored just for you. morning. Hey, welcome to Forest Hill Church. My name is Jason. I'm one of the pastors here and glad that you are with us. As you can tell, we are in a summer kind of mood and we are in the second week of a series that we are starting. It's a walk through this book called First John, a letter written by one of Jesus' closest friends to a group of people in the first century talking about how they can reach a certain destination. And we're calling it, Are We There Yet?, Because over the next few weeks, we are going to be trying to determine how do we go from where we are to where John and God wants us to be. And there's a specific uh, goal or outcome. Maybe you would think of it as a destination that John wants for us and he wanted for his original readers. And that destination is something called confidence, certainty, assurance, and As we were talking about this this week, as I'm thinking about confidence and certainty and I'm thinking about summertime and road trips, it got me thinking about this point in life when I was dating Jessica, my current wife. Well, I should say my wife now. She wasn't my wife then. You know what I mean? So she's my wife. We were dating and we were in that period of time where... um, I was trying to prove, you know, like impress her, be, be worthy of her to continue to, to date me and maybe end up in marriage one day. And uh, it took a lot of work for me. I know for some of you that was easy, but for me, I really had to put my back into it. But um, so we are at early on in our relationship. She says, hey, we're going to go to the lake with some friends and we're going to just hang out and spend the whole day there. And do you know how to wakeboard? I'm like, yeah, wakeboard, of course. And I should have known by the way she looked at me when I responded with all that confidence that there was something wrong. She was doubting either that like this could wakeboard or or something else. But I'm thinking to myself like, yeah, and if I'm not totally sure I can figure it out, but I answered confidently. How many of you know there's a difference between optimism and confidence, right? Anybody can be optimistic. And I was that I could wakeboard. So we get out on the lake and man, it didn't take five minutes till they threw the board in the water. And all of a sudden I realized I'm done. Because a wakeboard, if you've never been, a wakeboard is like kind of like a surfboard or maybe even a skateboard that you got to have uh, some pretty good balance and dexterity. You stand on it, you get pulled behind a boat and, and that's really impressive. What in my mind though, when she said, you know, a wakeboard, what I thought was something called kneeboard, which is a little different. It's more like one step above getting drug around on an inner tube, you know, like all you do, you kneel down, they strap you in and you just hold on tight. Well, I thought that's what she meant. Needless to say, there were many, many further tests for me to prove and impress her to continue to move forward with the whole marriage thing. But I learned something that day about confidence, 
about certainty. You need to know and make sure that even if we have the same vocabulary, that we're working with the same dictionary. Does that make sense? We can say the same words, but if we mean something different by those words, I don't have a whole lot of confidence in what it is that we're discussing. So John is going to say this at the end of the book. He gives us the destination that we're aiming for. It's in the fifth chapter, 1 John 5, verse 13. He says this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, that you may be confident that you've got eternal life, not kneeboard optimism, wakeboarding confidence, right? So when he says, I write these things to those of you who believe in the name of the son of God, right off the bat, he's telling us, and I'm thinking about this room, there are two categories of people here, at least two big ones. Those of us who believe in the name of the son of God, who've trusted in Christ, who believe what he says about who he is and what that means, and those who aren't sure yet, those who haven't made that decision. And both of these groups need to pay attention to what we're gonna do today, and here's why. If you're a follower of Jesus, at the end of this series, and especially after today, there is such good news that can make you more confident in who you are and how you relate to God and what your future looks like. And if you're not yet a believer in Jesus, there is such good news that I want you to hear maybe for the first time, maybe for the first in a long time, because you should consider this as an option for your life. So here's what we're going to do. We're taking our first stop on our journey. And this stop is a word, a place that if you haven't been to church in a long time, you're like, I knew they were going to do it. We're going to talk about it again. First journey is a place called sin. It's our first stop, right? Everyone loves to talk about sin. This is really, really fun. Um, And you knew coming in that that was what was going to be mentioned. So what I want to do here today, though, is to define it. I want us to talk about how we deal with it and then give you a chance and an opportunity to consider at the end what you might should do in response. To do that, we're going to start by reading this passage. It's from 1 John chapter 1, verse 6 through chapter 2, verse 2. And if you would, if you're able, out of reverence for the reading of Scripture, would you please stand? Here's what John says. If we say we have fellowship with him... While we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Him in this passage is talking about God. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation, we'll come back to that word, for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is God's word. You can be seated. I told you last week, um, 
that John is dealing with this group of people who have begun to attack his community, his, his church that he's writing to. And this, this group of people are what they call false teachers that have begun to sow seeds of doubt and bring some lies, some false ways of thinking about the world and about God in. And it's caused people to, to doubt and to even leave the faith. And so he's dealing throughout this letter with some of their teaching. And today we get into the first couple of things that he's trying to confront. And he says it right off the bat in the beginning, that first verse, if we say that we have fellowship with God, but we walk in darkness, then we're a liar. What he means by this, saying that we have fellowship with God means that we are in that unbroken, intimate relationship, the one with no fear, the vibrant relationship that God intended for humanity to have with him. And if we say we have that, but we still walk in darkness, we're lying. Now, walking in darkness for John that doesn't mean that you occasionally sin, that you mess up, that you've failed here and there. What he's talking about is habitual, decided sin patterns. Like, I am just going to do this, God, because I don't agree with you on what this means. John says to his hearers and to us that there's this idea out there that, one, there's no such thing as sin, that it's just all relative. That's where he went on to say, if you say you don't have any in you, you've never done it. That would be like us saying that, hey, your truth is your truth, mine's mine, whatever's good, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody, right? But there's another way that people are being led astray, and that is to say, God and I are good. <laughs> we're, we're great, homies. I mean, we are, we are tight, but I, I live however I want. I don't, I don't have to actually change what I do, right? And that, that's a problem that's common, not just in first century Ephesus, but that's for us today too. And so it would be like saying you go to a job interview, let's say it's at Lowe's. And at the end of the job interview, the, the guy at Lowe's says, Hey, I would like to extend this offer to you. Here's the salary. Love for you to join us. What do you think? And you're like, absolutely. I am all in, all in with Lowe's. Yep. And I love that paycheck idea. Let's keep that coming. But here's the thing. Um, I may or may not show up to work. I'm just not sure how I feel about, you know, your whole 40 hour thing, but I really like, let's keep the direct deposit up because I, I'm committed. I'm with you. You know, just some days I don't feel like working or I may try out a different job. Right? That's ludicrous. John's saying it's that, that is how this would be for us to go. Oh yeah. Me and God, we are tight. We're good. I'm not going to actually live differently. I mean, you don't expect that, do you? And so for these hearers and for us, the first thing we have to consider is, are we lying to ourselves about what it means to be in a relationship with God? Because that's what he wanted from the very beginning. God's intention for all of us was this unbroken forever relationship. Humans were not created with an expiration date. We weren't meant to end. It was meant to be unbroken forever, perfect relationship together. But then sin comes in. And, and here's what I want to do. I want to define sin for you because we may have the same vocabulary, but different dictionaries. And I want to do it in a way that may help you to grasp what we mean, because many of us grew up thinking of sin simply as uh, a set of rules that God has that we break. And when we break the rule, we sin, right? That there's some standard, there's an arbitrary, maybe nature to what he puts out in front of us, that this is what we're supposed to do. And when you break the law, then you're sin. Well, that's, that's true in a way but I wanna expand it for you a little bit. Every life form has an enemy. Would you agree with that? Everything alive has an enemy, an opponent, something that comes after. So uh, mice have an enemy and they are cats. Zebras have an enemy and they are lions. Panthers have an enemy, it is Tom Brady. 
Like every life form has an enemy that opposes it, that tries to destroy it. Okay? Sin is the enemy of God's creation. Sin is the thing that is opposing, attempting to destroy God's creation, what he loves most. All the things that he's made, including you and me, and all the people that he's in love with us. He made us, he wants that relationship. And sin is the power that we give into, that we are born into, that we choose sometimes to do opposite of what God would want for his creation. So sin is anything that we think, that we say, or that we do that's not what God intends. But it's also anything that we don't think, don't say, or don't do that is what God intends. Does this make sense? So God has a way of relating to us and his creation, and that way is perfect. And so sin is anything that's outside of that. So it's not just a a set of rules that we may break here or there. This is actually God choosing to protect and preserve that which he loves most. Sin is the thing that's coming against to try to destroy. And sin always does two things. It always divides and it always brings death. It separates us from him and from each other. Sometimes it even separates us from our true selves. And it also brings death. It's like the law of gravity. It's inevitable. Sin results in death every single time. And so think about this way. When you maybe have read, especially, hey, if you're a person who doesn't believe this Jesus thing yet... Maybe you've thought of God as angry and violent and bloodthirsty to go after things in judgment, and that's kind of turned you off. It's made you think that, man, I don't know if I can go with that. But if you consider that the reason he is like that is because he is putting all of his power and all of his energy and all of his ferociousness into defeating the thing that wants to destroy you what he loves most, that's why he's so passionate about sin. Every holy act of judgment that God's ever committed is an actual holy act of preservation. He's attempting to defend us. And we would never look out at a person in the real world who chose to defend, even with violent means, to defend that which they love most, their family, their kids, their wife. We would never uh, judge them for that. We would say, you should do that, right? And, and go until the threat is completely neutralized. That's how, what you should do in defense. So that's the way God is dealing with sin. It's the enemy of all of his creation. It always divides and it always brings death. So in every culture, kind of in in the entire history of the world, even the ones who are highly religious or the ones that are more pagan, there's always been this sense in us as humans that when something wrong is done to appease or to atone for that, there must be death. Right? Sin always brings death. It could be a, a human sacrifice. It could be an animal sacrifice. It could have been uh, plant life that you have to offer and sacrifice and burn up. Whatever it is, we just understand as creatures that evil demands a payment to atone. That payment's death. So God, as he's beginning the people of Israel... He builds into their world. In the first half of the Bible, the Old Testament we call it, he starts to build in this system of sacrifices. And you've heard this. Some of you have cringed at that too. Why do they have to sacrifice a lamb or a goat to cover the sin? Why would God do that? Well, he was training the people and indeed training us, the entire world, that sin's ultimate result is always death. So with that in mind, let's talk about how we're going to deal with it. John gives in this passage three ways. 
One of them is kind of our natural, just what we do without any help way. The next two are maybe like supernatural ways, things that we can only do as we engage with God and how to deal with sin. So the first one is this. We cover it. Usually, especially as little humans, from our earliest years, when we get confronted with us doing something wrong, with sinning, we try to cover. We hide, right? No, I didn't do that. Even though I've got crumbs on my face and you know, the pot of cookies on the ground, whatever, like we can be, confront a child and their first thing is, nope, I didn't do it. Now, it's easy to pick on three-year-olds, but we do the same thing all the time, don't we? Now, now I'm concealing it. I don't want anybody else to see where I've gone wrong. And by concealing or covering, what we're actually doing is saying, I will hold that sin myself. Concealing is what Adam and Eve did in the garden at the very beginning of our story of God's creation. When they broke his law, when they chose to define reality themselves by eating the fruit he told them not to, the first thing they did was hide. Do you remember this? They hide from him. They hide from each other. They put on clothes to try to hide their shame because concealed sin always leads to shame. If you want to make sure that you live a life of guilt and shame, you try to cover over or hide your sin. It will put you in that prison. So Adam and Eve show us exactly what sin does, dividing and bringing death. Proverbs 28, 13 says this. It says, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. It, it extends beyond even what's happening inside your mind. When you hide and cover your sin and choose not to expose it and to deal with it, you actually won't even prosper. You won't be successful in life. But he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. So the first way to deal with it is you can hold on to it yourself and hide it. The writer of Proverbs says, or you confess it and give it up. Confession is the next way that we deal with it. And I want to talk to you about confession for a second because this is another one of those words we may have a different definition but the same vocabulary for. When I was growing up, confession to me, and I got taught by my mom early on that to confess meant that you admitted it. You know, that God saw everything that you were doing, but, but what you did was you had to confess your sin. You had to tell him, yeah, God, I, I lied. I broke that rule. I stole whatever it was. And many of us bring that definition into adulthood as well. Confession simply means admitting. Well, that's, that's not all that this means. It's not like they pick you up to arrest you and then make you confess to the crime. Confession for John is something even bigger, even more exposing. The word that he uses for confession is a Greek word called homologeo. It literally means the same word. It means to say the same thing about. So for John, when he says, if you confess your sins, what he's meaning is when you and I say the same thing about our sin that God says. Not just if you tell him, yeah, I lied and admit it. But if you say, God, I see this the same way that you do. I see how this is detestable. I see how this is dividing you and me. How I don't feel close to you anymore because of this. I see how it's dividing me and the person that I love. I see how it's destructive. God, I agree with you on the fact that this can bring death. That's what confession is. So it's way more than simply copying to it. It's saying, I agree with you. We looked last week at this idea that God is light. And John brings that up in this passage. Right, talks about walking in the light versus the darkness. And we said this, that light always exposes. 
This is the part that I really, I don't like personally. I'm sure you don't like hearing much. Light always shines on whatever is already there, good or bad. It just exposes it. I was thinking about that this week. If you want to confess something, first you've got to be made aware that it's in you, that, that there's something off that's wrong. And it's like, um, any of you ever bought a house and had a home inspection done? Those are like brutal, aren't they? They're come back like 30, 40 pages long and you think that your house is going to literally fall in. Like there, there's a list of everything that could be wrong about your house on the home inspection. That's not meant to bring you shame about your new house. It's not meant to make you think that, um, you know, it's bad or that you're bad for choosing such a terrible money pit. The inspection, the light of that inspection exposes what could be deadly to you in the long run. It shows you where the breaks in the foundation, the cracks, the things that could end up making your life go awry where they are. And it gives you the opportunity to address them. That's what the light of God does as we begin to confess. We open it up and we say, God, what do I do with this? So you can cover your sin. You can confess or agree with God on your sin. And the third one, this is the best part. You can conquer it. But here's the thing. You and I, we can't actually conquer sin. We can't on our own, in our own strength, in our own power, no matter how much we try, no matter how many classes we take, how much we read, pray, do whatever. We can't conquer sin on our own. Because if you remember back what I said about sin, sin is the enemy of God's creation. Sin has already invaded us and has caused us to be divided and bring towards death. So we can't get out of that trap ourselves. Something else or someone else has to conquer it. And this is where we should be glad that God, as I said earlier, is so ferocious about dealing with sin because Jesus is the one who conquered it. Jesus' death and resurrection is what totally turned over the tables on sin and its power. And here's how John said it happens uh, in verse one, or chapter one, verse nine that we read. Look at that again. And if you've got one of those paper Bibles, you could like circle or underline these words. He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful. He is just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He's faithful. He's just to forgive and to cleanse. Why, is, why does it say that God is faithful to forgive us? Well, way back in early part of Israel's history with God, as he's forming them as a nation and a people, as he's creating this model for how he's going to relate to us after the fall, after sin, as he's creating the pathway for restoration to him, he promises that one day I'm going to do away with all of this sin. I'm going to deal fully and finally with everything that's keeping us separate. He promised it multiple times. There were things where he would say the Messiah will come and someone will pay the penalty and, and at some point I will come and live with you again. That's the future hope that we have, right? That one day he's going to do that. Well, by saying he is faithful, it means that he's kept that promise. And I want you to look at this. This is just one example. In Jeremiah 31, 34, Jeremiah was a prophet who was talking about the future for the people. He says this, Jeremiah 31, 34. No longer in that day, Will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. At some point in the future, when, when Christ returns with his kingdom, every single one of us will know God intimately like he always intended from the beginning. Nobody's going to have to teach anybody else about it. Nobody's going to have to wonder. We will all be restored back to that relationship with him. He says, here's how. For I will forgive their iniquities and will remember their sins no more. The 
only way that he can get back to that relationship is to forgive the thing that's separating us, the enemy of his creation that divides. So he's promised to do it, and he says, now through Christ I've done it. I've kept up my end of the bargain. Forgiveness is possible. But it's not just that he was faithful. John says he was also just. What is just about God forgiving us when we confess and agree with him on our sin? Well, if you think about what justice would mean in this situation, if God is absolutely opposed to can't be with sin, if that's the enemy to all of his creation, it's the enemy to him as well, then he's got to do something to end it, to neutralize the threat, right? And the justice that John is referring to is that ultimately if the payment has been made for that sin, if what Christ did on the cross, if that payment has been made and accepted, then it would be unjust for God to ask us to pay again for what Christ has already done, correct? So imagine if you got a letter from the IRS next month and the letter was from a guy named Jim who worked in the Scranton office and Jim said to you, hey, um, I, I'm feeling good today. I'm kind of liking this. I looked at your tax bill and that $3,000 that you owe, actually, don't worry about it. I'm good. We're just going to consider this taken care of. Back to our initial talk about John's desire for confidence. Would you have a lot of confidence in Jim's uh, decision-making? Would you, would you believe and trust that you didn't need to write that check? I mean, I'm glad Jim's having a good day, but what if he changed his mind? What if Jim got fired? What if somebody went back around and said, no, this is, we need the money. I mean, I don't feel confident in that. But if you got a letter from the IRS that said, your $3,000 bill has been paid by your uncle Richard, and here's the canceled check. It's taken care of. I would feel, you would feel a whole lot more confident that there's nothing else left for us to pay. And in fact, if the IRS came back a month later and said, hey, you've got an outstanding debt, I'd be able to show the canceled check. No, no, it's done. That's unjust for you to make me pay for this again. You've already gotten the money once, right? That example is a way to think about how God's justice is at work with our sin. When Jesus fully and finally paid for the penalty of death at the cross, his resurrection showed that God approved of that and his justice demands that he not hold you and me. Anyone who trusts in Christ's payment, he doesn't hold any of us accountable for it anymore. He can't. Can you imagine what that would be in your mind if you got to the place where you believed God cannot demand payment for you for what Jesus has already paid for? It's done finished. When Jesus on the cross said, it is finished, he didn't just mean the gruesome, horrific act of crucifixion that was happening. He meant it's fully and finally paid. I've done everything that you need. Paul writes in Romans 3 uh, about this justice. And I want to read it to you just so you get a sense of another way of considering it. This is dense. There's some deep words in here, deep thoughts. You may come back to it yourself, but I want you to just hear how we're talking about this justice, how God views it. He says in verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified. That means made just, made okay with him by his grace as a gift. Paul says, along with John, what Jesus did was enough. There's actually nothing that you can do. It was complete grace, complete God's kindness toward you, given as a gift. All you can do is say yes and accept it. You can't do anything to manufacture it or earn it or lose it. You just say yes and accept it. This was through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. I told you we'd get to that. By his blood 
to be received by faith. How good is God? That not only does he give us a gift of forgiveness and being made right with him, simply because of his kindness, but all he asks is that we just trust him, that we just believe it. You don't have to somehow deserve it. You don't have to learn or memorize a whole bunch of things. You don't have to live a certain kind of way first. You just, the, the initial act is you simply say, I trust that what you said is right. I agree with you that Christ's payment of the penalty of my sin is enough. And you get it. The, for those of you who have heard this your whole life and it seems like this is just really uh, no big deal. Of course, Jason, we, we know this already. This is revolutionary when you actually get it down in your heart. The fact that God would view you that way. The fact that other folks who are engaging and maybe you're a person who's in another religion or you've, you've done that, you're trying to earn to, to do exactly right. You're trying to follow the procedure and the prescription that's not necessary in this. This is why you should consider this option. Because Jesus is saying, I am giving you complete access to this and all you have to do is say, I agree. You should be saying amen more than you are right now. I'm just saying. This is really good stuff. Now, the propitiation word that John uses and that Paul uses, it simply means this, to totally satisfy. It means that the wrath that God had that we started talking about, the way that God was so angry and so ready to completely destroy, to totally neutralize the threat against what he loved, that all of that wrath gets poured out on Jesus. That on the cross, we can see physically how awful it was, but, but even more than that, everything that God had determined to unleash on sin, he unleashed on Christ. It's devastating. And he did that because it says in this Romans passage, it was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. For all of human history, God had been storing up his need for justice against every wrong that had been committed. And every year, the people of Israel and the people in other uh, nations, other countries, other communities and tribes, every time they had sinned and done evil, God had been storing it. He wanted to confront it and end it and he would hold back. And he would say, not yet. I'll look past that. that. That killing that lamb, killing that goat for a sacrifice, that'll be enough for this year. But I'm not forgetting it. I'm just coming back to it later. And in his patience and kindness with them, but also with you and me, he looked over all of our historical sin and waited until one moment when he himself as Christ hung on a cross. And then he unleashed the fury of holy justice. That's why he's just. And the reason that he can call him a propitiation is because he so unleashed everything he had stored up that there was nothing left. By the time he was done with Christ on that cross, there's no more anger at sin. There was, there's no more need for justice. Like grandpa, after Thanksgiving dinner, he was completely satiated. There was no more, I couldn't fit another thing in here. I'm satisfied. God's justice was satisfied at the cross. This is the message that we have. This is, this is the great news, not just the good news. This is what's being offered by John is you can have certainty in your life. You can know that this is how God thinks about you. He's not mad at you anymore. If you agree 
and trust Christ. He's not mad. You don't have to stay divided. It doesn't have to end in death because he's the propitiation. It also says that he's an advocate. John goes on to say, look, I'm writing these things to you so that you don't sin. Because I think that by the time you really grasp this, you're not going to want to do these things anymore. You're not going to want to be divided. But if you mess up, you have an advocate with the Father. What does that mean? Advocate is like an attorney, you know, a person who goes before you in a formal setting to represent you. When Jesus goes to, to God, and we, let's say you're now a believer and you've failed again and, and you messed up, and Jesus goes before God, he does not ask God for mercy. You ever thought about that? He doesn't go in and say, this is Jill. Um, God, let's just pretend like Jill didn't do it. She's innocent. Let's just pretend as if she's okay, it's good. You know, give, give mercy. He doesn't appeal to God's kindness in that moment. Instead, the advocate says, this is Jill and she's super guilty. But you know what? I already paid for it. So it would be unjust for you to punish her for this. So let's just let Jill go right here, knowing that she is free because of what he's done. And then he doesn't even stop with that. Remember he said he is, if we confess it, he will um, forgive. He is faithful and just to forgive, but also to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He goes a step further. He doesn't just make us um, guiltless and like at zero to start. He cleans away, he wipes away every trace and residue of the past. Because some of us, even though we believe, we may be certain that God's forgiven us, some of us still live with that shame and guilt. That thing that, that even though I know he's looked at me, he looks at me now as free, he still kind of gives me a little bit of the side eye because he remembers what I did. Because you remember what you did. And John says, now you've been completely cleansed. There's no reason for shame anymore. Jesus looks at you, God looks at you as if you never failed because of what Christ endured. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that worth checking to see if we're there yet? If our belief in that, if the certainty of that has really seeped into our hearts? And here's what happens when you get there. We do what John calls walk in the light. And by that, he simply means obedience. Walking in the light is just choosing to allow God's light to expose where we're off and then agree through confession to, to live the way that he wants. And we do that ultimately as we grow in this faith because we're in love with him, because we want to. It's like, you know, obedience is a tricky thing. It's, so I gave you two words today. You didn't want to talk about sin. We didn't want to talk about obedience. I got you both. You're welcome. Um, I don't like talking about obedience sometimes either. But obedience happens, right, as you grow up, as you mature as a human. It, it, it happens for different reasons. When you're little, you obey because you have to, right? Mom and dad, they can physically force you to obey. They can make you do what they want. When you become a teenager, 16, 17 years old, you start to obey Maybe they couldn't actually physically force you, but you obey because you need to. Because they have the car keys. They pay your cell phone bill. They make sure, right? You start to, it now becomes a logical, actually a benefit for you to choose to obey. But you still may not like it. When I was growing up, um, <clears throat> my mom always made us cut the grass every week. That was one of our chores. Well, she, she didn't start when we were at that little have to. Like, she let me get tall enough to see over the mower. But um, it was Louisiana, you know, but we're, we're okay. So I grew up and I didn't have to, to mow the grass. She couldn't have made me. I was a pretty big kid by the time I was 14. But I wanted to be able to get permission to go do what I wanted to do that weekend. So I mowed the grass. I grumbled and complained and hated that. But you know what happened? 
few years ago, I went home, visit my parents. My mom and stepdad's grass was kind of long. And I don't, I didn't have to cut it. She can't force me to do that anymore. She, she doesn't pay for my cell phone bill. But I walked in there and I looked at them and I said, hey, I'm gonna cut the grass. And she's like, no, 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 you're, you're a guest here. I'm like, I want to, I, I love you. This is a response to the way that you've loved me. And that's not a hero story about me. You've done it too. As we grow in relationship, as we grow in maturity, we begin to obey, not because we need to or because we have to, but because we want to. That's what John's after. And when you begin to live that kind of life, agreeing with God and walking in the light, there's so much freedom. There's so much purpose and so much significance. And I hope that today you'll Take the opportunity to consider that as the way for you to live your life, to trust what Christ has done, being faithful and just, and to let him cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So here's what I want to do. I want to read the verses again. Now that we've talked through them and explained them a little bit, and I want you to feel and allow God to speak to you through that. Because maybe there's some stuff that needs to get exposed in you. Maybe there's places of darkness that you need his light to shine on. Maybe there is a, a belief that you've had that you are not actually free and clean. That while he may love you, he still remembers who you were. I want you to let this just deal with you however he needs to deal with you. And I want to ask if you've never trusted Christ as Savior that you would choose today to take that step. So everybody close your eyes first. Bow your heads for one moment. Father, I pray that right now through the words of your scripture that you would use them to expose and illuminate what we need. Whether it's places of brokenness that need to be fixed, like a messed up foundation in a house, God, or whether it's places where we've wrongly thought you were still mad at us, would you expose that with your love and your light? I pray for those who are here that have never either chosen or been able to place their trust in you, Jesus. And for those that maybe feel right now that they could, that that news is too good to pass up, I pray you'd give them courage and confidence. May you cause new life to be born in their heart right now. And for all of us, I pray that you would help us to learn to walk in the light, to obey because we're in love with you as a response of love to love because of your grace. Help us to become those people. I trust you with it. Would you now stand and let's amen this prayer by reading these words. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if you decide you wanna get loud or yell at this point, I wouldn't blame you. 
But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is your good news today. I pray you live in light of it. We love you and he loves you. Let's worship together.